And I told John Boehner and Mitch McConnell last night, I am very eager to sit down with members of both parties and figure out how we can move forward together. I'm not suggesting this will be easy. I won't pretend that we will be able to bridge every difference or solve every disagreement. There's a reason we have two parties in this country, and both Democrats and Republicans have certain beliefs and certain principles that each feels cannot be compromised. I think the overwhelming message uh, that I hear from the voters is that we want everybody to act responsibly in Washington. Uh, we want you to work harder to arrive at consensus. There's no doubt that as I reflect on the results of the election, uh, it underscores for me that I've got to do a better job, uh, just like everybody else in Washington does. This is something that I think every president needs to go through uh, because the, you know, the responsibilities of this office are so enormous and so many people are depending on what we do. And in the rush of activity, uh, sometimes uh, we lose track of the ways that we connected uh, with folks uh, that got us here in the first place. Yeah, now, I, I'm not recommending for every future president that they take a shellacking like, they, like I did last night. Um, you know, I, I'm sure there are easier ways to learn these lessons. Uh, in 2010, during the first midterm election of Barack Obama's presidency, the Republican Party laid waste to House Democrats, picking up 63 seats and flipping the chamber. This was largely credited to a particular strategy of opposition deployed by the GOP during Barack Obama's presidency, having become the Republican Senate Minority Leader in 2007 and left with the responsibility of keeping shell-shocked Republicans together after their down-ballot defeat in 2008. Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky theorized that if Republicans were unified in opposition to the Democratic agenda, denying them the ability to claim any major legislation as being bipartisan, they could shift the public's view. As McConnell said in 2010, a week before Obama's landmark Affordable Health Care Act was passed, quote, it was absolutely critical that everybody be together because if the proponents of the bill were able to say it was bipartisan, it tended to convey to the public that this is okay. They must have figured it out. With unified opposition maintaining the absolute minimum amount of GOP senators voting for a Democratic bill, if any at all, would, in McConnell's view, give the perception to the public that the Democratic legislation was not bipartisan and the Democrats were not interested in working with the GOP. Despite months of Obama's team working with Republicans to compromise and taking several hits on the original bill they proposed, McConnell's strategy worked taking on what political writer Michael Grunwald called a victory of no. Mitch McConnell managed to keep a majority of Senate Republicans in unified opposition to nearly every major legislative push from the Obama White House, including the economic stimulus bill, which only had three Republican defectors, financial regulation of Wall Street, and of course, health care. In combination with the emergence of the Tea Party movement, that victory of no energized the Republican base delivering Republicans the House of Representatives in 2010 and the Senate in 2014, majorities that would effectively kneecap the Obama administration. Most importantly, it would incentivize congressional Republicans to find more political value in what they were against rather than what they were for. Ultimately, that would maintain for Republicans both chambers and deliver the White House in 2016.
As evidenced in their unified opposition against President Biden's American Rescue Plan Act, the most recent COVID bill that garnered not a single Republican vote, the GOP has taken on this strategy once again. The lesson of the Obama era for Republicans was clear. There is more value in denying the majority bipartisanship than there is in being bipartisan. But this is in 2010. And as far as Obama-era lessons go, Democrats appear to have learned theirs as well. Only six weeks into his administration, President Joe Biden signed his first major legislative accomplishment, the American Rescue Plan Act. So first, here's a little bit of what's in the bill. In addition to money for expanded testing and vaccine distribution, significantly decreasing the timeline for the U.S. to beat the virus, $1,400 stimulus payments will go to Americans who make less than $80,000, and those payouts have begun to roll out. Also included is an extension of the unemployed benefits from last year's COVID relief bills, continuing the $300 a week for unemployed Americans through September 6th. Additionally, up to $10,200 of the money you may have received on unemployment in 2020 is tax-free. Schools and colleges will receive money that can be used for a variety of things, such as providing PPE, hiring more counselors and custodians, modernizing HVAC systems, and adding support for trauma and learning loss. There is emergency financial assistance for millions of college students, money to help colleges implement safety protocols such as long-distance learning, and support for students struggling with mental health. State and local governments will also receive federal aid. The bill also expands eligibility for the Earned Income Tax Credit and increases it. The child tax credit is also increased, allowing for direct payments and expanding who qualifies for it. Experts agree that this will cut U.S. child poverty in half. Now, these measures are not permanent, of course, but the passage of this bill allows the road to be paved for things like this to be permanent. And while progressives may decry the minimum wage increase not being added to the bill, it's worth noting that this is one of the most progressive bills we've seen in recent American history. Shortly after the Senate passed the $1.9 trillion bill, the president said, quote, When I was elected, I said we were going to get the government out of the business of battling on Twitter and back in the business of delivering for the American people, of making a difference in their lives giving everyone a chance, a fighting chance, of showing the American people that their government can work for them. It isn't just the bill's contents, however, that testify to what a massive accomplishment this actually is. A more remarkable feat was that the bill managed to pass mostly unscathed, not giving up much in exchange for passage, the final bill signed remains much the same as the bill the White House proposed. That is a stunning legislative accomplishment in our historical moment. Amid a multi-front war, the White House's strategy was focused, keeping passage of the bill at the forefront of nearly every one of Biden's first 50 days. On one front, unified opposition from the Republican Party. Though 10 moderates met with the White House for several weeks to negotiate, those talks eventually stalled. Republican Senators Mitt Romney of Utah and Susan Collins of Maine tried to pin the fizzling out on the White House. However, their counteroffer was a $618 billion bill, nearly a third of what Biden proposed. And despite the accusations, Democrats did compromise. Biden agreed to lowering the income limits of Americans who received the stimulus payouts, allowing for more targeted relief. Additionally, to placate Democratic Senator Joe Manchin as he flirted with Republican amendments to undercut the jobless benefits extension, 
the president agreed to lower it and shorten its length. On another front, the White House additionally managed a split in the Democratic conference. Progressive Democrats wanted a showdown over raising the federal minimum wage after the Senate parliamentarian determined that the provision didn't meet the task for reconciliation, putting support for the bill from moderate Democrats out on the wire. But by a calm and collected messaging of what essentially was, we'll come back to it, the White House kept focused on getting the bill passed. In the end, Democrats united in order to pass the bill on the slimmest of majorities, and that included Senator Joe Manchin. While Obama's team had made the intentional decision not to take a, quote, victory lap over the historic passage of the Affordable Health Care Act, the Biden White House has positioned themselves to do things differently. Just a few weeks ago, Biden told House Democrats to, quote, speak up and speak out about the bill, noting that Obama's White House, quote, paid a price for not selling the ACA to the public enough after passing it. Two political writers put it this way, quote, the price they paid was what Obama dubbed a massive midterm shellacking at the hands of Republicans. The party is banking on this time being different, betting that the easy-to-understand nature of the relief package and the direct payments to Americans and contains in it will serve the party well in the midterms. As President Biden's first primetime address last week indicates, the White House appears ready and focused to sell the bill to the American public immediately. The post-passage strategy seems to be all about putting Biden in front of the American people more often than he's been so far, allowing him to connect with Americans more with unscripted interactions. Now, there's always a vulnerability and a risk to this politically, but I think it's the right move for Democrats. Now that the bill has been passed, the wise place to focus would be making sure that Americans connect the relief they experience with President Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. As evident in their changing strategy, Democrats have learned from 2010. But their work is cut out for them. The GOP has crafted some of the most brilliant opposition messaging I have ever seen, and it's summed up perfectly in a video Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy tweeted out the week the House successfully passed the COVID relief bill. I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Would you like them here or there? I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. Would you like them in a house? Would you like them with a mouse? I do not like them in a house. I do not like them with a mouse. I do not like them here or there. I do not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. Okay, maybe brilliant's not exactly the right word. In an indication that Joe Biden is proving just as resilient to GOP attacks as he was during the 2020 campaign, when Trump's sleepy Joe punches never quite landed, the GOP have turned toward another strategy they banked in on during the Obama years. No holds barred, unmitigated, scorched earth, culture, war. Describing Biden's ability to duck GOP attacks, former campaign director and senior advisor to Barack Obama, David Axelrod, told the AP, quote, he does not engage. He does not personalize his disputes, and while he is pursuing a progressive platform, he does not use the conventional ideological language about it. Axelrod further noted that Biden is just, quote, not a provocative personality. As GOP operative Alex Conant also told the AP, Quote, there's just not the antipathy to Biden 
like there was for Obama. He just doesn't drive conservative outrage. They never talk about Biden. It's amazing. I think Fox covered Dr. Seuss more than Biden's stimulus bill in the week leading up to the vote. The numbers, at least, agree with Conant. In a Media Matters analysis finding, on March 2nd, Fox News gave more than an hour of coverage to Dr. Seuss Enterprise's decision to discontinue six books that contained racist imagery, substantially more than the 26 minutes of coverage the right-wing network gave to vaccine distribution. Now, to be sure, that message is resonating with conservatives. According to a recent Morning Consult poll of nearly 2,000 registered Republican voters, nearly half heard about the Dr. Seuss controversy more than they heard about any other news event that week, including when the House passed the COVID relief bill. Kevin McCarthy's video testifies to this strategy, though notably, Greenings and Ham is not one of the books discontinued. And the GOP's 2022 midterm election fundraising efforts also jumped at the opportunity. For only a $25 donation to the Republican Congressional Committee, donors can receive a copy of The Cat in the Hat, another Dr. Seuss book unaffected by the publisher's decision. And perhaps more notably, available on Amazon for about six bucks. Despite the convenient neglecting of how Ted Geisel, the man behind the Dr. Seuss moniker, was pretty radically left, or that you probably won't hear Kevin McCarthy read the Lorax because of its progressive message on the climate, the reality of this strategic choice is not lost on some conservatives. Amanda Carpenter, a never-Trumper conservative columnist for The Bulwark and former senior communications advisor to Ted Cruz, tweeted, quote, It's going to take Republicans a few weeks to realize how badly they got rolled on the COVID bill while they wasted their precious time and energy whining about Dr. Seuss. And I have to agree because let's be clear here. The GOP did get rolled badly on the COVID bill. And even more unimpressive was the weak messaging from congressional Republicans. Criticizing the Senate procedure used by Democrats that allows for certain legislation to be passed with a simple majority, something called reconciliation, Republicans claim that Democrats have foregone the bipartisanship of previous COVID relief bills and that Biden has broken his inauguration promise for unity. Quote, Congress has worked together in a bipartisan way to pass five COVID relief bills during this pandemic, but this time was wholly different. The process was partisan from the get-go, said a statement from Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa. Quote, Democrats turned their back on bipartisanship for their own political interests and party priorities and shoved through this nearly $2 trillion bill without any Republican support. As the Senate GOP Twitter account also posted, quote, Democrats just rammed their American rescue plan without any bipartisan support. All, in all caps, of the other relief bills were bipartisan. All, in all caps, of the other relief bills contained compromise. The American people deserve better than this partisan wish list. Senator Ted Cruz, having found his way back from Cancun, said, quote, Joe Biden gave an inauguration speech. We were all there where he talked about unity and working together. Where's the unity and working together? Admittedly, it was a better statement than this gem from Ted Cruz said at CPAC just the other week. I gotta say, Orlando is awesome! It's not as nice as Cancun. But it's nice! 
The crazy thing about that clip, by the way, if you listen really closely, you can actually hear the shovel displacing the dirt from the electoral hole he's digging himself. But here's the point. Republicans can refuse to work with Democrats, take a unified opposition to the bill, and then conclude that the process wasn't bipartisan by not being bipartisan. Where's the working together, Senator Ted Cruz might ask. That's the strategy that served the GOP well in 2010. But here's the question. Does it work today? Democrats are clearly not relying on the strategies of the last Democratic presidency. So is it really a good idea for the GOP to use opposition strategies they used back then as well? For what it's worth, the numbers, so far at least, seem to say that's a pretty bad idea. A Morning Consult political survey found that 75% of Americans support the bill. Pew Research found that 70% of Americans support the bill. That includes 41% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents. Meanwhile, Republicans in Washington and their partisan theatrics, when it comes to the rest of the country, stand alone. Several Republican governors and mayors across the country have come out in support of the bill. That includes the Republican governor of West Virginia, who was in part what moved Democrat Joe Manchin, the GOP's best bet to stop the legislation, into supporting the bill being passed by reconciliation. That, of course, isn't even to mention that congressional Republicans have very little ground to cry deficit spending and no bipartisanship. In 2017, the GOP passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which raised deficit spending by $1.5 trillion and didn't, quote, pay for itself as they promised it would. And the way they passed that bill? Party line, through reconciliation. But that's not even the worst part for Republicans. When asked if President Joe Biden, quote, made a good faith effort working with Republican congressional leaders on the coronavirus aid package, 57% of Americans said yes. But asked if the GOP had made good faith efforts, only 42% said yes, while 55% said they did not. The GOP's bet on a unified obstructionist opposition has failed its first test. Joe Biden's agenda prevailed and with massive public sentiment behind him. While the GOP will attack his pledge for unity, the reality is that so far, Unity for Biden does not mean bipartisanship in Congress. It means bills that the majority of the public support and gain significant amounts of support from Republicans. Now, all this may very well change. It could prove that in the long run, the GOP does find victory in no again. When the Affordable Health Care Act was being pushed through Congress, public support for the bill fluctuated around 50%. And a few months after passage and sticking to the unified opposition, the numbers began to bend in the GOP's favor. But again, this isn't 2010, and 50% is a far cry from the 70-75% to Biden's bill currently enjoys. As others have noted, the American Rescue Plan is also more tangible, especially with the cash in hand that Americans desperately need. This will also depend on Biden's team successfully connecting themselves to the relief that Americans experience something the Biden team will need to be as equally focused in doing as they were in passing it. They could, very well, fumble that effort. At the very least, 
Democrats have decided against their 2010 strategy, inherently changing the game and calling into question the usefulness of the GOP using the same play. As of now, if these numbers say anything, it's that their strategy of no is backfiring. And if that continues, then reconciliation isn't the only Senate mechanism Republicans should be worried about. Their obstruction will simply build the case to the public for Democrats to do something far more consequential. Only Democrats Kristen Sinema of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia stand in the way of Democrats reforming or killing the filibuster. In fact, this whole battle demonstrated that while Manchin can be a thorn in the Democratic Party's side, he's really not the worst they could have, and he's actually pretty amendable. Last week, Manchin gave indication that he thinks the filibuster might need to be at least a little bit more painful, something I argued for in my recent episode, Bluster. And most damning for Republicans is Kristen Sinema's constituents. 61% of likely voters in Arizona said they favored passing key legislation over preserving the filibuster. Most importantly, that included 66% of independents. All in all, if the GOP wants to survive in 2022, then their bet on this strategy better be the right one. Otherwise, the filibuster's end waits in the wings, and the day may be coming fast when the last thing Republicans are going to be worrying about is Dr. Seuss. If you want regular updates on today's political events in between episodes, you can follow the show on Instagram. The handle is at thishistoric, or you can go to instagram.com slash thishistoric. A shout out to Montana listener Josh Koval for winning the last Instagram caption contest. If you want to see the hilarious caption on the photo of a certain Senator Rand Paul, you can find that on the Instagram as well. The website is officially up, and if you missed President Biden's first primetime address last week, you can check it out on thishistoric.com. If you're a fan and you want to support the show, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. You can also join the show's Patreon at patreon.com thishistoric. But the single best way to support the show, of course, is to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, and everyone else you think might enjoy the show. Hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out when new episodes are released. And thank you so much for joining me, Ty Wyckoff, on the Millennial's Guide to This Historic Moment. did not create most of the conditions and the convictions which have led us to this day, but this generation has a responsibility to resolve them.